I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hope everybody's doing well today. I want to welcome everybody to the Unimpressed podcast today. And today we have a very special guest calling in from Los Angeles. He is a longtime casting director and a lot of big projects you may know. Mr. Joel Thurm, welcome to the Unimpressed Podcast. Joel, how are you doing today, man? Um, so far, fine. I've been paying bills all day, so how good could I be? Hey, where are you physically located in Los Angeles? What I am physically located right in the middle of Laurel Canyon. Lived in the yeah. same house here for, uh, let me see, f- going on 50 years, 5-0. <laughs> oh, okay, you're, up, you're over there by Henry Hill, used to live over there. Well, uh, yeah, that name is familiar. A lot of people used to live here, a lot. A lot, you know. Yeah. So um, I just, yeah. You just go down the hill there. You and you get five minutes on the Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> Sunset Boulevard, exactly. Five minutes. Five minutes. Thirteen minutes to the valley the other way. When I worked for CBS, it was thirteen minutes. No, it was. Uh, let me see. Seven minutes to Television City and thirteen minutes to CBS in the Valley. Yes, and if you're listening, a lot of people don't realize this. If you live in Laurel Canyon. It's kind of a mountain. It, it separates the valley from the ocean. And if you live in the middle of that, or, you know, middle of that uh, mountain and top of that mountain, you can go one way to the valley and go another way to the ocean. A lot of people absolutely. I lived in uh, Brentwood for five and a half years. Brentwood sun, or Sunset Barrington Gardens. It was. Uh, well, you lived in a much classier neighborhood than I did. So good for you. <laughs> <laughs> Right across from Brentwood Lounge. I love L.A. So you've been in L.A. a long time. What does that look like for you? And would you live anywhere else? Uh, well, yes. Uh, had my druthers, I would be living in Manhattan uh, in Chelsea, one block from the A train. However, one since... Uh, well, in other words, I've, I've been, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. I've been using subways since I was seven, alone. <laughs> so... Uh, so wherever I live has to be, you know, like within one or two blocks to the subway. So what's going on in your world, uh, you know, in the casting world? I think casting directors may have been, you know, a little more celebrated when you were really hitting some big mainstream projects. Well, I, you- I, I, I beg to disagree. Casting directors yes. are, have never been celebrated. Casting directors <laughs> are the people who do all the work and then are completely forgotten. And then everybody else yeah. takes credit for it. <laughs> so I you know, it's seriously. Uh, uh, I was, I was just happy. I don't watching. disagree. No, no, no. I'm saying I, I'm sure you would agree. But like I was watching the Golden Globes yesterday. You'd think someone might have mentioned the casting director who helped put them in whatever project they were winning an award for. No, <laughs> didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. But what What does that look? What does that look like for you? You know, working on some big projects now. What's your motivation now being having that experience? My motivation now is to sell my book. <laughs> That's what my motivation is. Sex, drugs, and pilot season. No, I've, you know, this book, uh, actually, uh, Joaquin Phoenix suggested that I write this book 15 okay. years ago. 
because I'm a shameless self-promoter. <laughs> nice. Nothing wrong with that. Safe sex, drugs, and pilot season. Yes. Tell us a little bit about pilot season and what well, that uh, looks like. Way, to for the- some reason, it's looking backwards. Are you seeing it straight with the with the? Because um, I'm looking at the screen and everything is like mirror image. Yeah. Yeah. We're, but as long uh, as you can- see it, okay. So we're going to move that away. Yes, sir. Um, so what was your question now that I can answer it, please? If you're preparing for pilot season, what does that look like? I mean, you know, a lot of people know what pilot season is. Since, I, since I'm not doing that anymore, but I'll tell you what it was like when I was doing it. From where I was sitting at my uh, in my office at NBC, roughly from 1980 to 90, pilot season was like the worst. It was the busiest time of year and very often final auditions for series pilots would happen in my office. And there could be as many as three of these sessions a day. (laughs) It was awful, Um, very stressful, because you're really, lives get changed during that time for the better or for the worse, you know, and it's that's something that always weighed heavily on me when, when it came to making decisions. You know, hopefully I was right in my decisions more often than not. But uh, pilot season was just, uh, it's, 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 like, it's like working in a department store at Christmas. And you have these actors, you may, these actors come in that you may or may not know, and you got to be the one to give them the part. Well, I, I wish, I re- no, I was not an autocrat. <laughs> I was, I was, uh, I wasn't alone in making decisions. I wish that could have happened. No, because the, the decisions are made in concert with, um, usually the most important person on the other side was the writer, as opposed mm-hmm. to feature films where the director is the 800 pound gorilla and television is usually the writer. So the writer, of course, you know, is, you know, has a, has a huge amount of input as do, as did my bosses at NBC. I had a boss by the name of Brandon Tartikoff mm-hmm. and who was uh, head of programming. So, you know, we, we, we wouldn't always dis- you know, agree on everything, but it was, it was NBC executives, people from the studio or the production company. And all of, all of us would be making these decisions. I would influence the decisions and try to prevent people from shooting themselves in their feet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, but it was, it was always a group decision. What do you think about now? I've always said that you know, social media mm-hmm. sometimes is a, I'll say sometimes, I'll preface sometimes, is a casting call that's done for you by the public. Because I think sometimes Hollywood forgot about, sometimes they forgot about who's paying, right? So if you add that to the equation today, right? And obviously you have to be able to pick the person um, that can translate the camera or translate the stage, that's a big deal. Do you think social media has affected the way castings are done today? Well, I think social media has affected uh, casting in a in a in one way. It was it's very positive because now anyone can put him or herself on tape and read something, and basically you, you, you could you could audition. You you make your own audition tape and send it in. 
So that's made it a lot easier for actors to submit themselves. I think that that's a tool, but it shouldn't be the end result. I think nothing replaces a in-person meeting in a room. So the, those two things combined would be wonderful if the actor could put him or herself on and they know what they're doing and they know how to how to focus a camera. <laughs> you know, uh, I think it's very helpful. What are some unique experiences you had in that test? room um a guy who wrote a book called sex drugs and policy <laughs> well let's put it this way uh shall we say i was propositioned a couple of times in my office and said no <laughs> that's one um there were mostly really good experiences in my office i don't think i really ever had a bad one i mean yeah i consider it a bad one where this idiot actor was reading a part where the stage direction called for him to grab a woman by the hair and pull her across something. And this idiot grabbed my assistant's hair and pulled her across the couch. That's a little shocking. Well, it's, it's more than shocking. It's effing stupid. <laughs> Do you know who Sandal Bergman is or was? I mean, Sandal Bergman was this Fosse dancer, Bob, Bob Fosse dancer. She was the tall blonde in most of uh, most of those movies. And she went on to do an action movie called Red Sonia. I remember Red Sonia. Yeah, but anyway, so she was doing, she was auditioning for something and she had her whole, uh, what she was going to do all prepared and what she was going to do was change costume. So she was going to wriggle out of one pair of pants and then put on another pair of pants. But she tried putting on the second pair of pants, which were black leather and tight while wearing her high heels. And as her heel ripped through the leather, it was like, oh, what did she do? And it completely threw her off her mark. And it was just, I felt so badly for her at that time. I consider, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, like nobody got killed, but still it was a pretty dramatic moment. Now, you, you were involved in casting some pretty big films, right? Uh, yes, I think I did three. If you, I didn't do many movies, but if you're going to do three movies, they might as well be iconic. Grease, Airplane, and the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I did another one called King of the Gypsies, but no one ever heard of that one. <laughs> Now, I you know, I love the airplane movies. What was that experience like? Casting it was the most fun experience I'd ever had. Really? <laughs> it was, well, first of all, the guys were hysterical. The, uh, the Zuckers, the Zucker brothers and Jim Abrams. And, you know, they laughed at my ideas because I, I had good ideas. Let's put it that way. And they were, uh, very receptive to when I suggested that, um, half the characters should be played straight and not by comedians you know the the people who are working in the air in the in the in the tower um you know that, that, that play it straight and if it's played straight it would be funny which happened to coincide which was the way they were thinking so that was wonderful and i mean using an actor like peter graves come on you know he had no idea what he was doing <laughs> but uh from what i'm told he um what do you call it when he got the script, he had no idea what his was, but his kids loved it and said, Dad, just do it. Just don't think. Just go do it. And he did. And what was some of the, what was the guy's name? Nielsen? What was his last Leslie name? Leslie Nielsen. Uh, by the way, he, he and Peter Graves died within two weeks of each other, I think, last year or the year before. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. But uh, with, with, uh, with him, it was, he was our plan B because plan A was to, and I went to literally every famous person who'd ever been in, uh, who ever played a doctor on TV or in a movie or in the movies, you know, from Jack Klugman to Richard Chamberlain. And they all said no. <laughs> all of them said no. And so, uh, we had agreed that if, if all those real doctors passed, we would go to, uh, Leslie Nielsen. And obviously it worked out. Thank mm-hmm. goodness all those people passed. Yeah, right. He had a few moves. How many moves did he do? They do the airplane. Oh, I mean, he turned out to be their muse. I mean, he did. I did. I never saw Airplane Two, so I have no idea about it. He he probably was in it, but uh, and I don't do sequels. (laughs) He jokes, but um, no. But the whole police squad, that whole TV series, all started from Airplane. Hmm. You know, he literally was a muse for the Zucker brothers and Jim Abrams. You know, he wasn't he wasn't a woman walking around in diaphanous silk, but he was definitely their muse. What about what was the experience with Greece? Well, Greece was the most wonderful experience, you know, one could possibly have. Uh, the, I'm just trying to think, uh, Paramount was incredibly supportive. Um, the only difficulty, the difficult part of it was the producer, Alan Carr. And Alan Carr, again, he was another person you had to prevent from shooting himself in the foot. Or both be. You, you probably heard the story where he he offered uh, the the role that was played by Sid Caesar to a male porn star by the name of Harry Reams and and paid him five thousand dollars. When you know, basically, Parab- we yelled at him, "Are you out of your effing mind? What are you doing here?" And yeah. he had to learn to behave. He also, um, I'm trying to think of what. The, here's a very good example. He wanted to use a lot of his friends, and one of his friends was a woman named Fanny Flagg, who's a terrific actress and a terrific writer, but he had her as the principal. And I said, I said, Alan, you know, if we're going for the principal, it's Eve Arden. Eve Arden, who is America's school teacher, both on the radio and television, you now elevate her to principal. You, there has to be some connection to the person's work, to the, um, to the part they're playing, which leads me to another thing because when, when, and Paramount loved the idea of Eve Arden. But then once she was set, I realized, you know, Eve Arden needs a foil. 
she needs to work off of somebody. And I said, well, she needs, we need somebody like Dodie Goodman. The next thing we know, we're hiring Dodie Goodman, who had no, she wasn't a character that was, was in the script. We just added her. And obviously that, that duo paid off. What are your instincts with something like that? How do you make those decisions? What do you feel? What do you look at? Well, I, like you said, the first word you use is instinct. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, um, you develop an instinct for what's right. And I, I can't define it more than that. But as a kid, I, I was encouraged to, um, or let me put it this way, or at least I wasn't yelled at for spending all my time in front of the television set. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would go to the kiddie shows at the local movie theater. And then I was allowed because my parents would actually give me sandwiches to stay for the adult movies, you know, um, I'd hide in the bathroom for a little while till, till it was safe to come out. And then I'd watch the adult movies as well. So I basically had been studying this all my life without really knowing it. And do you think it's being able to put tones together? Because I think if you look at this from like law of attraction, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And understanding tone and what tones work with each other. Have you ever thought of it like that? Well, I, I, I think the word I would use is chemistry rather than tone. Okay. Uh, that's the comment. So yes, to see who has chemistry. Very part of the audition process is always if you're casting a group or something, you you try to get all the people together that you're considering to see if there's a natural chemistry, mm-hmm. you know, among the people. When I cast Taxi, for instance, there was instant chemistry among the cast. It was, um, you know, it and that that was a mixture of of people who had unknowns and people like Danny DeVito and Mary Lou Henner who were total unknowns, mm-hmm. you know, in that. In that grouping you know when you say chemistry right mm-hmm. is that is that timing right it's, it, it, you can't define it you, you really can't define it uh what do you notice when there's not good chemistry <laughs> you get you get bored and it's uninteresting uh okay. what's what's her what's her uh angelina jolie and brad pitt in Mr. and Mrs. Smith mm-hmm. had chemistry. John and Olivia had instant chemistry. There's a story there. Do you know Olivia at first was not interested in the role? Do you know this story? No. Olivia was, first of all, she was already a big pop star. And she was out of town while we were doing, while we were starting to cast it. And uh, when it was um, offered to her, it was like, well, I don't know. I don't know if I want to do this. So she did two things. One of them, John Travolta went up to her house to meet her and they liked each other instantly. And then she asked for a screen test so that she could see how she came across. She was worried about being a few years older than John. She was worried about her acting skills. And, you know, the test proved that she was, um, you know, capable of everything. By the way, in the test, something interesting happened. We were using the dialogue from the movie script. And it was a full-scale screen test with film, not a cheesy little tape test, but a full film crew. These were expensive tests. For some reason, Alan Carr, the producer, and one of the co-writers, and Bronte Woodard, were not at this test. I'll never know why they weren't there. But what happened was we did a take and the crew did not laugh. Randall Kleiser was directing it. We did take two and and also no laughter. And then this, there should be laughter. This is a funny scene. And then I pulled out uh, the Samuel French, who's the publisher. Uh, they're, they're a publishing company that does small editions of 
Broadway's plays, and I had it in my back pocket, and I pulled out, pulled it out, and went to the scene at the drive-in, and I noticed that the play, the musical play of Greece, had different dialogue than the movie dialogue. So I gave the play dialogue to Renendel, to the director. I said, here's why it's not working. Give the give them this dialogue. With the new dialogue, the first time they did it, the crew was roaring with laughter. Yeah, and That's this cool. is, by the way, stuff that casting directors don't usually do. <laughs> yeah. what, what was your take on Travolta at that time? Well, I, it's, it's hard. To, I don't have a take on him because I've known him since he was 17. I also produced a movie that I hope you've seen called Boy in the Plastic Bubble. Boy in the Plastic Bubble was in 1976. Greece was in 78. And Boy in the Plastic Bubble was directed by Randall Kleiser, who directed Greece. I mean, the, the uh, Randall, uh, John liked working with, um, with Randall so much that even though Randall had never done a musical film before, John wanted him. And Randall was a superb technician and hired all the best people to surround himself, like Pat Birch, the original choreographer, Phil Jeffries, the designer. What Randall didn't know, he hired the best people who did know. And, we, and the result is fantastic. <laughs> well, the great, great talents, I'll say, the great talents out there, right? I always say have a light switch effect, right? You turn on the camera, you ask the question, they go, you know, and it's a natural mm -hmm. thing. And, you know, sometimes Hollywood doesn't really dive in to the makeup of, of some of these stars. Was there, was there anything that off, there was something off camera about Travolta that maybe the public doesn't know? You know what I'm saying? Like, there's always something different between uh, the great ones where on camera, obviously they're great off camera they may have one something that kind of messes well, with them a little I, I, bit or whatever it is well I, the thing about travolta is uh, the thing that most people did not know was that he was not vinnie barbarino from welcome back cotter granted he's from new jersey where the sopranos were from and his name ends in a vowel but he came from a very cultured family his mother was an acting and dancing teacher and he was not um uh, you know he was not a jersey caricature um so he, which he played as vinnie barbarino but when we did boy in the plastic bubble totally different person emerged he was playing a 16 17 year old kid a normal, well, a normal kid, except he had to live in this bubble because of his immune disorder. The other thing that most people don't know about John is he's he's shy. I mean, you learn to adapt. I mean, he was you couldn't. He was the biggest movie star in the world for X number of years. You know, but but and in person, very very shy and you know, does not dominate a room if there are, if there are, if there are several people in it. You know, he's like a normal person. <laughs> Did he just did he did he go to that alter ego when he got on on set and it was just completely different or? Well, I just I attribute it to the fact that he's a wonderful actor. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is a guy who could go from Danny Zuko to playing a variation of Bill Clinton in that movie that he did uh, mm -hmm. about a politician, and he was pure Clinton mm -hmm. accent and everything. He's a he's a character actor. You know, he's sure he can play his own, but Zuko is a character, you know, an exaggerated character, um, mm -hmm. you know, and he and he was he was brilliant. Where do you think actors get this from? You know what I'm saying? Because like when you go in your head to find that character, right, the more you can relate to that internally within your head, the better it comes off on screen. Well, uh, honestly, honestly, I don't know. I mean, it, it, we're, we're, it, it, you, you have to be able to have enough technique 
to know mm-hmm. what you're doing. Also, it's, it starts with the writing. You look at what, what, what the writing calls for. You just did what, what, what Travolta was asked to do in Boy in the Plastic Bubble was the exact opposite of what he was asked to do in Greece. And then you throw in another, and then take Tony Monero from, you know, Saturday Night Fever. Although that's closer to the Greece character, it's still very, very different. There's two ends, right? You know, for a great writer. I think, you know, my opinion of great writers are able to, and I'll use the word tone again, are able to find tone for whatever character it is. And great I guess. See that. Yeah, I think, yes, that's a, that's, that's a good way of describing it, yes. And a lot of people don't realize that either because when bad TV or bad movies are made, usually the writer can't create tone the right way for the character. Well, let me say that no one sets out to, to write a bad movie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so they you know it's uh it's not done purposely so yeah. they just they just don't know or maybe they're writing about something they don't know about and they haven't researched it who knows writers in hollywood that are able to see that and write to that right and then vice versa putting in the actor pulling that off you know well, if people think of it in that context, it's a pretty interesting, I don't know, puzzle. Well, I've been very lucky. I've been very, very lucky in my career because I've worked with great writers. Mm-hmm. I mean, in television, come on, Taxi, the writing in Taxi, or before that, the writing on the Bob Newhart show. I mean, th- there was wonderful writing, and wonderful writing makes it easier, makes my job easier. <laughs> uh, so I was very, very lucky uh, to, to get these early projects. And then because I did well with them, I was offered other projects that were very well written. I Once given the opportunity, um, I delivered. I lucked out, but I delivered. You know, you can get in the door, but then you have to deliver. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. A little, what's a story in the book? Uh, we haven't heard anything about the sex and drug policy. Well, but let's start with, you know, uh, something people that I'll try to make this one fast. Um, Susan Sarandon. I did not have sex with Susan Sarandon. But okay. Susan Sarandon, how Susan Sarandon got in Rocky Horror Show. Her agents did not want her to do it and would not let her audition. Um, they said, and she certainly won't audition. So, and Susan was just at about, just about to break it really big. She had done a few things. She had changed agents to a new powerful one and she didn't want to go against them. Now, about a week or so before her audition or before the, the casting process began for them for Rocky Horror, I had a little dinner party, if you could call it that, spaghetti and meatballs on laps in my in my tiny little apartment. And Susan came to this with her then husband, Chris Sarandon. Also, there was director Randall Kleiser, uh, and there was a man, Barry Bostwick was there with his manager. Anyway, uh, Chris decided he wanted to see a movie uh, that was a TV movie. So he went in the bedroom with Randall Kleiser and they watched The Killer Bees with Gloria Swanson, which left Bob Lamond, Barry Bostwick, myself and Susan and one other person in the, in the other room. And what, and that's it. That's the end of that, that part of the story. The next day I get a call from Barry's manager. His name is Bob Lamond, who also, by the way, was John Travolta's manager, Jeff Conaway's manager, a whole bunch of other people. And Bob said to me, so did you see what happened last night? And I said, no, what are you talking about? It seems that Susan and Barry were exchanging very heavily sexual innuendos by looks. <laughs> mm-hmm. And let's say two or three days later, 
Susan had left her husband and she and Barry were an item. So now remember, going back, Susan's agents would not let her audition. So I said to Barry, when you come in for your audition, just bring Susan and I'll take care of everything else. So he brings Susan and then I go up on stage and start to read the scene with Barry. And then I said, Barry, this is ridiculous. Why are, why are you reading this with a, you know, a 30 year old balding man? Uh, maybe Susan can read with you. Susan comes on stage and reads with Barry. <laughs> and the, I remember the director, uh, uh, looked at me and said, who is she? And I told him who she was. He said, can she sing? I said, I don't know. And I said, Susan, can you sing something for us? And uh, she said, well, I don't know anything. I said, well, how about happy birthday? And she sang happy birthday in that same very sweet, you know, uh, sound that you hear in the movie. And she got the part. Now, by the way, several weeks into production, uh, she and Barry were no longer talking. <laughs> That's a cool story. What does the entertainment landscape look for you like for you currently? What is the past few years and what are you looking to do next few years? Well, of kind of, you know, well, I'm done with actually with doing casting or anything like that. I've, I've actually a couple of people I've actually been asked and I said, I can't do it because I don't know who the new up and coming people are. Those are the people that you don't see yet, but you know, of. that's why I was good at what I, what I did before. So I said, no, I can't do that now. So now I sit at home and watch streaming television and i love it um i think we are now in a platinum age of television where there's incredible material i mean so much material you just can't watch it all and they used to talk about the the 50s or as the golden age of television well if that was the golden age we're in a platinum age now i mean i also thought that my years at when i was at nbc which was during all of the 80s, was a sensational time for television. I mean, we had all of the best shows, and they both critically and in terms of ratings. So, I mean, Cosby, Different World, Family Ties, Hill Street Blues, A-Team. I mean, I could go on and on. Um, and they were very successful, and they were very good. And I think brands, there were less brands back in the day, less choices to see a brand television well, show. Well, there, right? there, there were less choices, which I liked. You know, come yeah. on, if you only had a choice of three networks plus PBS and then uh, Fox came in, it made life so much easier. You didn't have to spend a half hour figuring out what you were going to watch. You knew what your choices were. It's kind of frustrating now when... You spend 15 minutes figuring out what you want to watch or what, and because everything is available. But that was then, now is now. And where do we, where do we find the book? You find the book, uh, Barnes and Noble, uh, Amazon, Amazon.com. It's, um, I'm in the middle of turning it into a, an hour one man show because there are stories in here that when, when I look at it, I'm amazed. You know, Mm -hmm. for, for a kid who grew up on his grandfather's farm in Brooklyn. Now, we're not talking about upstate New York. We're talking about a legitimate dairy farm two blocks from a subway stop. Wow. <laughs> you know? So that's how I started my life gotcha. <laughs> with zero show business connections, none. And how okay. I got from A to B to C to D and E is really, I think, kind of fascinating. And none of it was planned. None of it was planned. I, it just, oh, someone would offer a job. I said, oh, yeah, that sounds good. I'll do that. <laughs> Yeah, you said you've been in LA fifty years total. Well, I moved to Cal. I moved here September twenty eighth, nineteen seventy. I came out because um, 
in New York, I had become very good friends with a woman who very, not everybody knows now by the name of Pearl Bailey. Are you familiar with Pearl? Uh, not sure, no. Well, during the, say, the 50s and the 60s, there were only two nationally known black female stars. One of them was Lena Horne, and the other one was Pearl Bailey. Lena Horne was the beautiful, light-skinned woman, and Pearl looked very, very much like Queen Latifah, a solid build, and, uh, and Pearl usually played the best friend of because she was funny. I met Pearl when she was starring in Hello, Dolly! on Broadway. I was was working for a man named David Merrick, who at that time was the most important producer in the country, actually, but, you know, located in New York. He made me a casting director. I had never been a casting director before that. Uh, but we would have discussions, and we would talk about actors and things that I had seen, and... Basically, I was given a choice of becoming his casting director with a, a small raise or being fired. And when I said, I don't know anything about casting, he said, mm -hmm. yes, you do. You just don't know you do. But gotcha. getting back to Pearl, she was starring in Hello, Dolly, and we became great friends. And uh, at the time, because Merrick was trying to save money, I was also company manager, which was a business position. So I had to be at that show every night, at least through the end of the first act, to make sure the box office receipts and all that was, was were, were correct. But we would go out to dinner like a couple of nights a week, and uh, we'd go down the street to a restaurant called Sardi's. And for me, I was like, what, 20 years old, and I'm with this huge star, and people are coming up to the table to kiss her ring. And, and then one day she said she'd been offered a television show, a variety show. Did I want to come to California and work on her show? And I said, yeah, why not? Yeah. <laughs> so that's how I got to California. And her show was dead on arrival, by the way, because it was a, an old-fashioned variety show. And Laugh-In had already changed the face of variety shows on television. So oh, okay. her show made a quick exit, but I stayed. I stayed nice. in California. Well, you never you, know, man. You you uh, you did good. I tried. Yeah, I did. I did okay. On point, yeah. you know. I never yeah. became rich, but you know, I'm not wanting. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, not, uh, it's not bad living up there in the canyon. Well, no, no. And if I can read something for you, I mean, this is interesting. It's it's, it's interesting to me because it's the last thing that I wrote in the epilogue. And let's see if I can read it and make it concise. Because okay. In Laurel Canyon, where children used to be an invasive species, it used to be when a couple had a baby, they would be gone within two years max. Today, almost all the houses on the street where I live in, in the house I bought by accident in 1971, are inhabited by families with kids. In an odd way, if I were to be reincarnated, in an odd way, I have become a surrogate uncle, grandfather to them all. If I were to be reincarnated today, I would choose to return to Earth as one of the boys flying down my street on a skateboard, bike, or scooter, or one of the four-year-old girls doing the same thing but wearing a Disney princess dress. So uh, that's my street. And I love living here. I love, um, you know, I just, I love my neighbors. COVID brought us all together. I know that my neighbors will take care of me. You know, if they see three newspapers piled in front of my house, they'll knock on the door. You know, so which is very unusual. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Well, I, I appreciate you coming on the show, Joe. I think it was a great conversation, a lot of great stories there. And if you want to 
hear more great stories, check out Joel's book called Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season, and maybe a one-man show one day. <laughs> well, John, thank you very much for having me on here. I really appreciate it. And I, you know, believe me, I skipped over a lot of stuff which said, which wouldn't be PG. So right. I figured all the good stuff is written in here. <laughs> right. Thanks for uh, joining us today. And this is Joel Thurm, yep. and I'm John Edmonds Cosma, the CEO of Bang Production. 